Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. This is 365 Sports, powered by Sikkim365.com. John Kurtz joins us from the KC Sports Network. Craig Smoke with me as well. And John, here we go again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just when you thought you might get a nice little... Uh... You know, maybe holiday break, break after the end of the season. Uh, no, we're right back into it. It's it's actually been – I'm kind of getting used to it at this point as somebody who, you know, really pays attention to it and covers it. It's like a nice flow. You get the in-season and you go straight into realignment season. You know, there's just no break for uh, anybody at all. But, I mean, we shouldn't really be surprised, right? I mean, Florida State is – they've made it pretty obvious throughout this entire process. They're They're very serious about this. And – Although a lot of it to me seems kind of like a toddler complaining at the checkout line that they're not being given the candy bar that they want. Um, it may work. I mean, I don't know. Like realignment has been a, a crazy deal. And I, I certainly see some of the arguments that they are making, particularly that they maybe got bullied a little bit by ESPN into this. But at the end of the day, like I don't know they still signed on the dotted line. I it's It's going to be really convoluted. I think that's the thing that uh, I guess maybe it's good for us that are in the, the content game as far as this goes, or they're just really interested in this. It is going to be fascinating, absolutely fascinating to see how this plays out. But I would just kind of close by saying that the fact that so much of this is occurring on literally the Friday before Christmas uh, tells you one, just how serious Florida state is about this. And two, just how little they care about the ACC at all. I mean, you, you have to really not like somebody and be upset to be doing all this on, on December 22nd. So, I mean, hey, uh, cheers. Cheers to Florida State on that front, I suppose. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, John, there's obviously just so much uh, going on when it, it comes to realignment, as you, you referenced there. Uh, out west, we got the decision yesterday 
where the Pac-12 saga has come to a close, it seems. Oregon State, Washington State coming to an agreement with the other 10 schools and uh, you know some of the details still to be figured out, but they basically got what they, they wanted in the end and now they can move forward with their various arrangements and what that looks like in the next couple of years. And now we've got this situation with the ACC. I'm not asking you to necessarily predict because none of us know how any of this is really going to fall, but from a Big 12 perspective and from your own personal perspective, what are you hoping? What are you thinking when it comes to the Big 12 and kind of sitting back right now? Do you have any personal preference on what kind of a move you'd like to see the conference make, depending on how some of the uh, chips may fall here over the uh, coming years with the various storylines? Yeah, well, first of all, just like selfishly as a, a Big 12 fan and a fan of a school that has always been in a position that doesn't have many options, I, I am glad that things seem to be settling down for Oregon State and Washington State a little bit here because I, I certainly feel for them. I have a, a lot of empathy for them in the position that they're in. And so I'm glad that, I mean, they clearly have the superior case and all of that. So I'm very much glad that it now seems like the, the other 10 are just going to kind of back down and give Oregon State and Washington State the easiest path forward possible uh, from where they sit right now. As far as the Big 12 goes, like, I think it's, I think it's a time to be just kind of uh, aggressively waiting in the wings, like aggressively lurking, I guess is how I would position what I think the Big 12 should be doing right now. And I'm, I'm quite confident that Brett Yormark is um, is absolutely going to be doing some lurking now, waiting for, for things to fall apart to scoop up what you can. I know that Brett McMurphy, he was the one guy to float out yesterday that the, the Big 12 could be a possibility along with the Big 10 of the SEC for Florida State. I mean, I really failed to see how Florida State would be this aggressive in doing all of this, pay whatever it is that they're going to have to pay, which seems like it's going to be like a nine-figure penalty even if they get that reduced some I have a very hard time seeing them doing that to come to the Big 12 to make marginally more money I mean you know I don't know what that would wind up being five to ten million dollars a year more maybe uh if they were going to come to this league they're going to be in the Big 10 of the SEC I think pretty much come come hell or high water so you turn your attention to you know me Dan Wetzel pointed this out but it's something I've been talking about for a while like Brett Yormark loves basketball we know that. We know that he's been working on a, a plan to try and decouple the, the basketball rights eventually and, and make more money that way. And feels like perhaps that's a market inefficiency right now is, is the basketball part of this. Well, if you're talking about being able to land Louisville and Duke out of this from the ACC and you compare that with what you have right now in basketball, and I, we'll see what happens with Gonzaga. I know, you know, they just added Oregon State and Washington State, it sounds like, too, for basketball. I don't know if that will have much of an effect there at all. But he's talking. He could potentially put together like an absolute, absolute superpower of basketball conference here. So I'm sure he is going to be having his eye on that. And I, I definitely like the idea of that. And then, you know, if it's like a pit, um, I, Virginia Tech, NC State schools like that always seem to be borderline whether or not that they get reshuffled into the Big Ten or the SEC out of all of this. But if the, those sorts of schools are going to be there, yeah. I mean, I, this to me has been the idea the entire time. You, you try to position yourself as the third strongest conference out there and be the landing spot when everything else blows up. And right now, Florida State has has their hand on the TNT. They've got their hand on the dynamite, ready to just blow that whole thing up. So I think you just you just be waiting there with a parachute, uh, ready to take everybody in that, that you think is worthy uh, of, of coming to the Big 12. Yeah, and you don't want to see a conference struggle, but, I mean, the Big 12 is not like they haven't had some scars. They always seem to be like a cat with nine lives. The ACC now looks they, – they, they really – how desperate must they have been? And, you know, the question is, why would they have done this? Bob Thompson, uh, I just sent a note to him because we brought this up to Bob yesterday about the opt-out. Um, bizarre to me 
that they would let it be in that agreement. They must not have been sold on whether or not the ACC network would be successful. Bizarre that the ACC would let it in. ESPN must not have been sold on the fact the ACC network would work. He also mentioned ESPN has to be almost pissed off right now because of that news being mentioned by Florida State today because now it is a war between ESPN, not the ACC, but also their future with FSU. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff with that. You know, I mean, <laughs> you're, you're right. ESPN does have to be sitting back, like, like really Florida State. But again, nobody should be surprised. Like, Florida State is the embodiment of Florida Man. Uh, Florida Man is going to be on basalt and do a lot of crazy stuff. So that's that's kind of where Florida State is at right now. But yeah, I mean, when you talk about, you know, the news that hey, the contract actually really only goes through 2027, and that ESPN has the right to extend it to 2036. I mean, we now have that news out there. So. So I'm talking about. I mean, it just feels like so much of this is really convoluted and messy. And I, I think for Florida State, they're, they're, the correct strategy probably is to muck it up as much as possible, right? Like throw as much mud as you can out there, which would be dropping little bits of information like this, and see what what comes out of it. Because the the basic optics of it are: look, Florida State signed this contract like everybody else did and got locked into it. What is their case really? And if, if that's what you're looking at, you don't have, like, the conventional way of going about doing things. You've got to do it in a more unconventional way. And Florida State, that is that is fighting dirty, getting this information out there and uh, trying to make the best of it. And uh, I think that's kind of the strategy I expected them to take the whole time. And today was just like a magnum opus of it with everything that was coming out in those in those board meetings. I mean, it is crazy. Actually, I, one of my favorite tweets from today was uh, from John Wilner, who said that <laughs> in terms of watchability uh, – Florida State board meetings and then like eight greater than signs UC Regents meetings uh, with everything that he was having to watch with the, the the Cal Regents going on with UCLA and Cal in that battle and that is just so true and so emblematic of uh, the cultural differences and just everything between Florida and California so I just they pull up some popcorn at this point. So John elsewhere uh, when it comes to Kansas State I know we'll, we'll talk about the bowl game here in a second but with National Signing Day we, we've been talking about just how sort of weird it is the the confluence of events in the calendar you, it sort of gets lost now in the transfer portal but how would you uh, kind of summarize Kansas State's early signing day efforts is it uh, where people feel like they should be I, I notice it's not near the top of the Big 12 is that kind of understood going in is that a disappointment how would you describe where they are in recruiting especially coming off the, all the momentum of last season yeah there are a couple things here so one it's a smaller class for K-State they only signed 15 um, which is based on the numbers and the need kind of going into the year if that was definitely expected the whole time so it's, it's much more like a quality over quantity sort of thing depending on where you look the average star rating uh, actually in some places is higher than it was last year but sometimes the the lack of quantity in the class can drag down some of those rankings um, they also they wound up with eight of the 15 players as a four-star prospect on one site or the other uh, it was just not a lot of guys that on like one site or were consensus four-star prospects on on three so it didn't look quite as good there but I mean it's been a long time since K-State has had a, a class where they had eight guys that had a four-star designation somewhere and I know we talked on our podcast, Taylor Bratt, who's K-State's director of recruiting, and he said, like, hey, like Gus Hawkins, for instance, who was the first guy to commit to them, he winds up being a four-star, but he was like, look, if Gus would have gone public with some of the offers that he got, that he just kept quiet because he was so committed to us, his ranking probably would have gone up. So, you know, I mean, look, you can look at that and say it's excuses, say it's whatever. The other thing that's a little frustrating to me is that, you know, the on-three rankings when they were coming out on signing day, 
still had K-State at like, I don't remember what it was, ninth or 10th in the Big 12. But if you go look now, K-State's all the way up to fifth. And a part of that is because on three was dragging their feet on ranking the JUCO players. And K-State had a, a couple of huge JUCO gets, one at safety that, you know, potentially is a Kobe Savage replacement. And uh, Malcolm Alcorn Crowder, who's a, a huge defensive end that they really needed and won a recruiting battle over Florida uh, in particular, but others, uh, that was a huge gift for them. They get ranked, and all of a sudden the class starts to shoot up a little bit. So they're actually now fifth in the Big 12, if you go look at on three right now, um, at least as of last night when I was looking at it. So I think it's fine. You know, they, they were chasing some really big fish. Uh, Michael Boganowski was uh, one of the best players in the state of Kansas from nearby Junction City. Came down to K-State in Oklahoma, um, and he, he chooses Oklahoma. That was a tough, tough pill to swallow. K-State really wanted him. Uh, talented linebacker. Good news there. K-State's got a really, really deep linebacker room right now. The other one was Grant Bricks, uh, offensive lineman from Nebraska, who was a uh, borderline top 100 prospect and, again, went down to the wire. K-State, Oklahoma, and Nebraska, he winds up choosing Nebraska. Uh, that was a tough one to swallow, but K-State had, I think, arguably their best offensive line class ever, uh, if you look at who they got. I already mentioned Gus Hawkins, who's a four-star prospect. Caden Massey from Kansas picked K-State over Oklahoma and Nebraska. So they did – they did win a couple of recruiting battles there against those schools. So it kind of just comes back to, again, quality over quantity. Um, yes, you would have liked to have gotten some of the more high-profile guys. Jason Ross is another one defensive end from Kansas City that they were in probably the top three, four and coming down to the wire. But Nick Saban started showing up at his high school within the last couple of weeks and lo and behold, he chooses Alabama. You know I mean? It's tough to fault them too much for that. So um, if they would have landed one more of those really big fish that they were chasing, I think he would have felt a lot better. But – now they're gearing up for a huge year in 2025 because the state of Kansas has about seven or eight prospects who are going to be four stars or better. K-State feels like they're in a really good position for a bunch of them, but I know behind the scenes what's happening right now is that Chris Kleiman and Gene Taylor in particular have gotten completely on board with NIL and how important it was. Mm-hmm. And it's been a little, little frustrating, I think, for K-State fans. Jerome Tang has fully embraced the importance of it, goes out and campaigns. He was just doing it a couple of nights ago, uh, meeting with, a bunch of donors and fans preaching the importance of NIL. I think Chris Kleiman has been more old school, dragging his feet on that a little bit. Gene Taylor hadn't totally, you know, they'd still been leaning almost more toward like, hey, donate to the Ahern Fund, which is like money that they can take for facilities and stuff like that. Um, I got to give a shout out to my guy, Curry Sexton, former K-State wide receiver. He had a thousand yard receiving season playing with Tyler Lockett. He now heads up Wildcat NIL and he's done a great job. Uh, pushing the importance of that and organizing and helping to push Chris Kleiman and Gene Taylor to the point that they're at right now. And I think Kleiman looked at it and realized like, Hey, we've got a huge 2025 class here that could really make or break the next couple of years of the program. You've now got Kansas. That's a much bigger factor in all of these recruitments. That was not the case a couple of years ago. So they're really stepping up the NIL game and going to make a big push at this 2025 class. I think it is going to be a, a really, really pivotal class uh, for K-State and Kansas uh, in state. And so that's, that's the next thing really on my radar recruiting. Line. Well, yeah. And then of course, in that same area, what rules doing at Lincoln, it, you mentioned that they beat Nebraska on a, a few of those recruits. Baylor is kind of in that same boat, but slightly maybe ahead of what K-State is now doing because they seem to have gotten involved for this season, but heavily involved when it comes to the class of 2024. So, Eight and four, NC State, the bowl game. How would you describe, based on K State winning the conference last year, despite the loss to Alabama in the bowl game? How would you describe this season for K State and Chris Kleiman? Yeah, you know it was definitely a mild disappointment. 
uh, for the fans, especially because, you know, you think back to that Texas game, they were really close to putting themselves in position to be in Arlington, um, just needing six yards uh, with a goal-to-go situation there in overtime. And that, that obviously really, really stings. And the Iowa State game, you know, I mean, it leaves a horrible taste in your mouth. I'd be interested to know how that game goes if you had won the Texas game and a spot in the Big 12 championship was on the line. Um, you know, there were a couple instances there. I mean, I can just tell, like, Will Lee is the guy who has the, I mean, it's a hilarious highlight, just shoves Iowa State's running, chases him down in the middle of the field and then shoves him, and it looks like a Super Mario Kart thing where, like, you hit him with a mushroom and it just gives him, like, a little supercharge and he runs away from everybody. And K-State winds up walking on him. Now, he went to Texas A&M. He had a lot of options, really talented guy, but I think K-State felt like he had uh, perhaps checked out a little bit at the end of the year, and they – they kind of let him go. So there were a lot of things happening at the end of the year there once the Big 12 championship aspirations uh, had evaporated that I think probably led to just a, a really, really awful, historically bad defensive performance against Iowa State that left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. So I think you have to characterize it as somewhat disappointing, but it also is a nice sign of the times that, hey, an 8-4 season um, where you, you do beat Kansas in the biggest Sunflower showdown since 1995 uh, is, is viewed as a disappointing season. Uh, so and it seems, again, like a lot of the stuff that's transpired has, has sparked some change. Like I mentioned, I think they were in particular bothered by Kobe Savage heading to the transfer portal, and that was one of the things that really alerted them, like, hey, all right, we've got to get on top of our NIL. I think they've upgraded a lot of the other places. Safety will see. They've been great at identifying transfer portal defensive backs. Uh, tremendous at it over the last few years and sending those guys on to the NFL. Russ East, uh, Reggie Stubblefield was really good and is playing professionally now, and then uh, they have one last year, too, and Josh Hayes. So they, they've been really good at that. I hope that they do the same. But, yeah, I think you're going to see some good things happening. And, look, what I want to see the most in the bowl game is not only Avery Johnson. I mean, that's the obvious. He's, he's going to be the guy taking over a quarterback and seems like they have a commitment from him here for for at least this first year. But Connor Riley is going to get the, the trial run as the offensive coordinator. And I, I love Connor Riley. He is maybe my favorite coach on staff just as, as a guy. He's a great dude. Uh, for a number of reasons, I really enjoy talking to him, and, and I think he's a great football mind and a great offensive line coach that probably has had options. Got to admit, I don't love, though, this, hey, give the offensive coordinator a trial run in the bowl game thing because you just, you're just you behind the eight ball, man, with the way this count. You guys referenced the calendar a moment ago, the way this calendar moves and what options you're going to have at offensive coordinator if you decide that it doesn't work out. And then even then, how fair is it to judge a bowl game? you know, a bowl game for a guy and his, his acumen as an offensive coordinator where we all talk about how little they mean because there's so much variance. And he's going to be having Avery Johnson make his first start at quarterback against a really good NC State defense in the bowl game. And K-State has had some guys that have left. Uh, ben Sinnott, for instance, is opting out uh, of playing in the bowl game, so you're not going to have your, your huge weapon there at tight end. I don't know that it's a, a perfectly fair way to do it, but I'd imagine he's probably going to get the offensive coordinator job. And, much as I love the guy, it's pretty late in his career to be stepping up for the first time as an OC and offensive line coaches aren't typically your prototypical like uh, offensive coordinator. So I, you know, I don't know. I'm a little leery of it. Certainly hope that it works out. I'll be very interested to see how it works out. I think they need to make sure that Avery Johnson is throwing the ball because I don't think he was particularly thrilled with how he was used this year, which was basically any, if he was going to throw the ball, there were going to be training wheels on it. It was not happening very often. And most of the time he was just a, a glorified running back, which I get it. He's incredibly fast and very effective in that role. But I think Connor Riley's going to need to prove to Avery Johnson, like, hey, I'm going to have a plan and let you really unleash your arm because everything we hear, if you watch his high school highlights, you can definitely tell. But everything we hear from 
inside the program is that the guy absolutely can spin it too. So uh, that to me is the, the headline of what's happening in the bowl game against NC State. John, I think we've covered on pretty much everything football-related, but uh, I'd be remiss we didn't follow up. Uh, I think it's the last time we talked to you on just the feel around the basketball program. You know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, talk uh, past couple of weeks with Naquan Tomlin and that whole situation. Not asking you to necessarily rehash all of that, but just where does, you know, K-State, the fan base, Jerome Tang, you know, just the program as a whole, where does everybody kind of find themselves as uh, we're starting to knock on the door of conference play starting up here in just the next couple of weeks? Yeah, I think things have settled down a little bit, uh, which is which is certainly a positive. I guess first just addressing what they are on the court now that, you know, you have finality and you realize that Naquan Tomlin is not going to come, you know, riding in on a white horse to save everybody. This is the team. This is what they've got. And, look, I was at uh, T-Mobile Center in Kansas City last night. They beat Wichita State solid performance they played better in the second half but they still I don't know they're, they're they, they certainly don't have the pop that they did last year they don't have the guys filling up the highlight reel like Marquise Noel uh, Keontae Johnson and of course Naquan Tomlin um, and I think like Tyler Perry for instance great shooter but he's had trouble doing he's he's I think being asked to do more than he probably should by playing more point guard they're getting Quez Glover back a guy that at one point was committed to BYU they're going to get him back for the next game against Chicago State. He hasn't played the entire year. He played a couple minutes in an exhibition game, hurt his knee. It's just now coming back. I'm very hopeful that that can get Tyler Perry off the ball some more and allow him to just be a guy that shoots because he he's small. He has trouble beating guys off the dribble. He's not overly quick or athletic. So I think that's been one thing that, you know, and you wish if you had Naquan Tomlin in to attract more attention inside, it would probably create more open looks for Tyler Perry. Um, Arthur Kaluma has shown flashes of brilliance at times, but the last couple games, he's just been really streaky. Last couple games, not quite been there. He's, he's not really able to get to the rim. Little sloppy three-point shot is coming gone. He's the other guy that you're really relying on. Cam Carter, I think, is about as improved as anybody in the league. Uh, he is a much different player from a year ago. Um, and it's basically the only guy that can really go create his own shot and create some offense. And so they are relying quite a bit on him, too, but he's playing a ton of minutes. So, again, Getting Quez Glover back hopefully helps, but they, they have they need to take another step or two before I will be convinced that they're an NCAA tournament team. I think they have that in them, uh, but just not quite seeing it right now. And I will say the Villanova and, and Providence wins are aging very well. Uh, Villanova, I believe, won at Creighton earlier this week, so mm-hmm. I think those are going to hold up nicely. Going assuming they beat Chicago State, going ten and three in this non-conference is what I would have set the bar at going into the year. It's pretty tough, salty non-conference schedule. And I look if they can get out of it ten and three. You're in, you're in a fine spot. Without a bad loss, you're in a fine spot to make the tournament if you can win eight or nine games of the Big 12. But I'm still going to need to see them pick it up a notch or two. They did it last year, though. They didn't look great at this time really last year, and they, they picked it up a notch or two once conference play started. So I, I certainly believe in Jerome Tang. And as far as the temperature with everything that happened with the university president, Richard Linton, putting his foot down on Naquan Tomlin, and, you know, he has done a lot of – a lot of lying behind the scenes about that whole situation. He is still not well-liked, I think, by virtually anybody there. Uh, I don't think that's going to change. But it does sound like, I don't know if the right term is to say, like, cooler heads have prevailed. But things have cooled a bit, and everybody's just kind of moving on for right now. Long term, I don't know how tenable it will be necessarily, but I certainly feel more optimistic than I did last time I spoke to you guys about something working out there. Um, and, again, I think Jerome Tang is someone that's going to be very happy about the fact that K-State has really uh, upped their, their commitment here to NIL because he knows he's going to need it. And another thing I will pass along is that through everything that's happened with Richard Linton and some of his really erratic behavior and 
temper and things that have just boiled over behind the scenes, I think he and Gene Taylor are as close as they've ever been. Uh, I feel pretty confident in telling you that, that it's really brought them together, uh, kind of forced them through fire, having to deal with all of this, with the, the president acting the way that he has. And so there's some hope for you as a, as a K-State fan or, or someone who wants to see that relationship continue is that Jerome Tang obviously was very, very loyal to Scott Drew for a long time. And now his direct boss, Gene Taylor, who's the reigning college athletics athletic director of the year, uh, they have become even closer throughout all of this. So there are certainly some things in place that can make you feel a little bit better about the, the situation. So there's, there's nothing better, John, than when the president, the AD, and the football and men's basketball, with all due respect to anyone else, are all aligned. And so Taylor, with the connection to Linton, but also with the fact that he likes Tang, Tang likes him and raves about him, uh, and climate, of course, that, that could have been disastrous. That could have been just an ugly breakup. Everybody eventually goes their separate way, and K-State's right back into, like, what the hell do we do now? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you were you were staring the worst-case scenario in the face, and I – I mean, I wouldn't say that they're totally out of the woods yet. I right. don't know what the decision-making is going to be like at, at the end of the year. And, you know, with Gene Taylor, I almost want to, you know, I think the thing you maybe worry about more with him is like, does he just say, hey, I don't want to deal with this. I'm just going to retire and, and right off into the sunset. And then you're left wondering about what happens with everybody else. But for right now, it seems like things are in a, a better spot. It had calmed down a little bit. And look, when it was just like a five-alarm fire every day there for about a week, um, in K-State's world, I think you'll take that for right now and just say, all right, let's see how this basketball season plays out and kind of go from there. You want a funny tweet to, to close out the segment on FSU? From let's Tom, do it. Tom Fornelli, Florida State is claiming the ACC just isn't the same league due to injury, the grant of rights, in reference <laughs> to the college football playoff being left out. So pretty good. That, golly, this is like you said, Craig said this yesterday, my God, right before Christmas. You have to be an angry group to be able to do that, but it's the way it is. Uh, have a great Christmas uh, weekend. John, thanks for your time as always, and we'll talk to you again soon. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.